Good morning, Julie. Good morning, Carl. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you all right, too. Awesome. Wonderful. So, well, welcome to both of you to my podcast, <laughs> A Life in Biography. Um, let's begin by uh, your introducing yourselves, and we'll start with Julie. Okay. Thank you, Carl, first of all, for having us here. I know Peter and I are both really delighted to join you. So I'm Julie Goodspeed Chadwick. I am a Chancellor's Professor of English and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Indiana University, Purdue University, Columbus. Um, I, I, I work in Sylvia Plath Studies, which is my, my favorite subfield, but I do work on women writers more broadly, especially American and transatlantic women writers. And I believe you have me here to talk about the collected writings of Asia Lovell, which I co-edited with Peter. That's right. And you've also uh, written a book about Asia Lovell. Yes. And you know that that book for me um, was the, the very thing, the very kind of research that allowed me to work on this project with, with Peter. So um, and he and I have talked about this. I, for me, that that book paved the way for this work. Um, and the collected writings of Asia Webel is a book that I wish had been um, published years ago. Um, <laughs> me I, too. You know, so <laughs> it's, it's wonderful <laughs> to have access to these writings. I, I absolutely agree. Peter, what do you have to say for yourself? Not much. Um, <laughs> So I'm, I'm Peter K. Steinberg, and I have been working and studying uh, on Plath for a long time, I guess. And I've done a high school level biography on her, which came out in 2004, which is funny because I don't even read at the high school level. And um, I co-edited Plath's letters and co-edited or co-authored a book of essays on Plath and um most recently, I had the pleasure of co-editing Asia Wevel's Collected Writings with Julie. And um, I guess the only other thing I'd say is that I, I you know, I'm on, I'm on Twitter and I have a website at um, sylviaplath.info and a Sylvia Plath Info blog, which is connected to it. Well, the other thing I want to say about Peter K. Steinberg is I don't make a move on Sylvia Plath without checking with Peter first. Oh, I want to second that. <laughs> well, okay. that's nice of you to say. Yeah. Um, Julie, uh, I'm going to ask Peter uh, to respond to this as well. It's a very basic question, but uh, I know a lot of people listening to this podcast already know a good bit about our subject, Asia Wevel, but not necessarily everybody. And some of what they, people who think they know who Asia Wevel was, might be surprised. So I'm just going to ask you the question, who was Asia Wevel? Julie? So, um, I, I, sorry, I thought you were going to have Peter. Go, yeah. Go first. yeah. I'm happy to jump in. Peter, do you want to, to start? Um, no, I, I think he wanted you to start. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm happy to. So with, with Asia, um, I think most of us came across her through Plath studies and early Plath biographies were the first um, instances in which she emerged. And Ted Hughes biographies 
picked up the the cues a bit later. And so for me, um, the the first um, encounters I had with Asia were in older biographies, and there wasn't really a lot of substantial or correct um, at that point information about her. And so I was working on an article in trauma studies about Plath, um, which subsequently was published in the, the Journal of Literature and Trauma Studies. And I became interested in Asia because of the manner in which she's featured in a handful of Plath's poems. And in those poems, Asia emerges as a very um, cold and calculating, um, an unnatural woman, um, an unnatural mother. Uh, she is a femme fatale, but not one that is desirable or that you're rooting for. You know, I mean, I know that, that some people consider Lady Lazarus, you know, to be a, a femme fatale, but this is the kind of representation in terms of, of Asia um, that you're supposed to distance yourself from, that you're not supposed to like. It's undesirable femininity and in very um, like conventional uh, terms. So um, that, you know, th those are the, those are the ways in which Asia has um, been perceived. And then um, she also uh, comes across in Ted Hughes's work as being paradoxically, you know, desirable, but demonic and dangerous and destructive. And so we, we see that most clearly in the, the poetry that makes up the sequence Capriccio, which was published in 1990. But because that was a limited art edition, um, it, it was difficult to access until it was published in collected poems. So I, I think, you know, for, uh, in terms of who Asia is, uh, that's, those, those um, portrayals are the ways in which we have um, learned to understand her, you know, to access and assess her. And so um, it was uh, revelatory to encounter Asia in her own words and in her own writing. And so for me, that took place at Emory. Emory University has the largest collection of papers related to Asia level, and those are subsumed within the Ted Hughes papers. And so um, Asia, once you work with um, the, the primary materials, and those are those are scattered around the world. And so um, Peter and I, you know, have the great fortune to collect as many as we were able to acquire and, and publish those. And so when you read Asia um, and what she has to say about herself in her letters and her journals and her miscellaneous texts, I think what you ultimately find is a woman who is, um, you know, incredibly gifted with language, but who's also very forthright um, in, in many instances, who seems unflinchingly honest. I mean, she's willing to um, do some soul searching. She castigates herself. Um, you know, she, she seems um, very uh, authentic you know, and in many respects, um, you know, it's hard to, know, of course, be able to you know, know if that's the case. But I mean, there, there's there's a there, the way that Asia um, articulates and expresses herself in her letters. You know, I, I think the 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 quality that you end up deciding um, to to use to describe her would be vulnerable. And, you know, there, there are some memoirs that also pick up on that word. And, and run with it. So for instance, Lucas Myers, 
um, calls her vulnerable mere hammer mesh. I mean, she has various friends who also use that particular word, you know, to, to describe her. Um, David Wevel as well, you know, so I think, you know, ultimately she's a woman who was very talented um, in, in many ways, but I think the constraints of her life and, you know, the time and place that she was living, it's, it's remarkable that she was able to produce what she could, um, you know, and we're lucky uh, to have the writings that we have. But so I think ultimately I, I would describe her as a complex, vulnerable woman who's exceptionally talented and whose life and work ultimately um, are fascinating and significant onto themselves, but that they are important too, I think, in having a fuller understanding of Plath and Hughes. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes to all that. Uh, Peter, um, besides Ask You, who to you, Asia Weber was, because of your involvement with Sylvia Plath over quite some time, I'm guessing, we haven't discussed this, but I'm guessing that your own view of Asi Webel must have evolved to some extent, and especially after doing this book with, with uh, Julie. Yeah, of course it did. I, um, you know, the trajectory of how we've come to understand uh, more about her and learn more about her has is, is kind of been backwards. I mean, we, as Julie mentioned, we heard about her in various biographies. I mean, for, in the first biography she was ever mentioned, her name was Olga. And, um, and then she, then she became Assy Wevel in, in, you know, the later biographies, she, she was truly identified. But she got a biography by Corinne and Negev in the early 2000s. And then she got a book of criticism by Julie a couple of years ago. And then we get her actual collected writings. So in some ways, it's it's rather backwards. Um, in, in so that's that just goes to show you how pioneering Julie's work has been, and in addition, Corinne and Negev's work as well. Um, I spend a lot. I've, I know a lot about Plath, obviously, but I spend a lot of time being confused about Assi Level, if I can be honest, because she had a sort of a transient life, uh, you know, being born in uh, Germany, fleeing to Italy and then Israel, and then going to England and Canada and Burma, and then back and forth between England and Canada for a while before settling in England and then Ireland, et cetera, et cetera. I can never truly place where she is just sort of in my mind. Um, I, need, I need her writings, which we now have, that will help sort of um, align the chronology of her life um, with with the writing that she's doing in her letters and in her journals and other texts. So, um, but that's part of the reason why I wanted to work on this book with Julie is to try to get a better understanding of who she was. And I certainly got that. And it has sort of helped to um, realign um, the way that I sort of understand her, her life and her involvement with Plath and Hughes. Um, so, yeah, I think that's it. Um, let me just continue with you, Peter, for a second. Um, tell us a little bit about, and Julie can chime in on this too. Well, how do two editors work together on one book? <laughs> it's, it's actually, um, that, that's actually kind of, 
I've, I've, I don't know if remarkable is the right word to do it, but Julie and I did this book entirely through email. I mean, I think we <laughs> might've talked on the phone once or twice and we've text, we texted here and there, but it was, I was doing my part, Julie was doing her thing and we were, we were working towards the, the same goal and we reached it. And, and that's what, that's, what's kind of awesome. And, and, in I mean, with the other collaborations that I've done, uh, you know, with the letters of Sylvia Plath and these ghostly archives, it was basically the same thing. Uh, we we kind of work in our little silos, but we have, you know, one of those those bank tubes um, that that you can sort of shoot the content back and forth to one another and and create the work. So that that's kind of how we went about it. Mm hmm. Uh, Julie, what what else would you say about that? I mean, how do you how do you actually divide up the material? You work on the same. If it's if it's the letters part of the book, do you both work on the letters? How does that work? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This is a this is a great question. So, um, you know, Peter has extensive experience and expertise editing, and when I so I, I long wanted um, access to a scholarly volume of Asia's writings. And I was actually at Emory when the journals were deposited and they had not yet been cataloged. And they were brought out to me and I knew exactly what they were without opening them. And I was just floored, you know, to be able to open them and to read them. And so when I went back to the hotel that night, I contacted Peter and said, hey, I think now, now is the time. I think we might have the opportunity to be able to get these writings published. You know, are, are you interested in working on this? And I was ecstatic that, that he said yes and he signed on because you know, not only was the book a dream come true for me in terms of you know, being able to have you know, ready access to these writings and being able to curate them and, and research them, but to work with Peter um, was also a dream come true. So this is actually the first collaborative scholarly project that I've had the pleasure to work on. Um, so in the past, you know, my, so much of my work is, um, I, I, I don't really want to call it traditional because I work in feminist recovery, which is not, you know, yet, you know, kind of considered um, traditional. It, it's, it's still, um, unfortunately, you know, innovative in a lot of uh, senses, but, um, you know, the, the work that I've done has been solo authored. And so to then, switch gears and to work on a, to edit, to co-edit a scholarly edition of letters and journals and poems and translations and <laughs> miscellaneous texts was a, a, a wonderful experience um, in terms of learning how to do that kind of work. And I actually had had a little bit of um, practice in, in grad school. I had taken two courses with professors who had edited um, letters in, in scholarly volumes. But, you know, Peter, of course, has extensive knowledge. And um, right from the beginning, um, we really meshed well in terms of, of what we wanted. So I, I think, um, first of all, communication is really important. And, and Peter said that too at the beginning of the project. He's like, you know, we, we need to be able to communicate well about this because first of all, in our book, um, there are a lot of different kinds of texts. And so there were also a lot of moving parts because we were trying to put together uh, documents that, um, like, so for instance, you know, Asia's biographers didn't know that some of these existed. And so we were putting documents together um, 
to be published for the first time, but also we were recovering many of them. And then we were trying to trace out allusions and references to people, places, and things. So what we ended up doing, um, we, we both are organized and we're both hardworking, although Peter really um, you know, sets the bar on, on those things. So from the beginning, we laid out our vision of what we wanted the book to be. And we decided that we wanted it to be as comprehensive and as complete as um, it, it could be. Um, but two, um, it, and this, and Peter felt very strongly on, on this side that we wanted to present Asia's voice in unadulterated fashion, you know, that, that we didn't want to um, interfere um, with what she was saying. So we needed to be very careful in um, in the, the transcribing so that when she has typos or she has errors or when she crosses things out, you know, we, we tried to represent that as, as best we could in the book. But I also, and, and, and of course, Peter signed on for this too, we also wanted to make sure that um, illusions that might be familiar to us or, or that weren't, that we could track those down and we could gloss um, all of the things that we could that would make the reading experience one that was uh, as easy as could be, but pleasurable, you know, for the reader so that you're not trying to track down, you know, the illusions and the, and the references while trying to um, stay with the letter or the, or the journal and, and um, read it in terms of its continuity. So from the beginning, our, our, the vision um, was clear to both of us and we had um, an Excel uh, spreadsheet in which we listed all of the letters. And what I think is, is really remarkable too, is that we were able to date the majority. Um, I mean, I, we were able to date everything that we came across, but we were able to pinpoint um, the exact dates of, the, of some of the work that previously had been undated. Some of that was due to internal evidence. Some of it we were able to track down with living people who knew Asia. Um, some of the uh, materials had um, envelopes or other kinds of um, you know, information you know, that shed light on, on when they were written. And I, you know, I think of us as kind of literary detectives. So <laughs> with this kind of project, you do have to be highly organized um, but communication is so key, I think, between the editors. But then, too, you're really relying on archivists and institutions and friends and colleagues and, you know, people who knew Asia or people who are related to people um, in, in the book who are still alive. And so, I mean, we really had to have a kind of network in which we could rely on, um, you know, various kinds of resources to provide the information that we needed. So, I mean, we we were we were very organized, um, but there there was work that needed to be done just constantly on this, and so we worked. Um, I mean, hard, very hard on this book. So we initially proposed the project in spring of 2018, and mm -hmm. it was published, you know, at, at the end of November of 2021. So um, I mean, I, I think there was always something happening in in relation to the book, or something that we were tracking down, or something that we were doing on behalf of it. Um, you know, I, I have some experience with scholarly editing, but I mean, Peter is, is just the expert at it. So I think that worked really well. Um, I, I think the fact that, that both of us were coming to this with, with passion and with dedication and with our own knowledge of, of ASIA and, and, and Plath and Hughes um, allowed us to produce the book in the way that it is. And so we were fortunate in that the work that we had done paved our way, 
you know, to work on this book. And so getting permissions was an easy process. And so we had, you know, the support of the state of Asia Wevel and the, the support of the state of Utah Amakai and the archivists were wonderful. So, I mean, I, I think at least from my perspective, everything that we had done prior to the book allowed us to work on the book. And we each brought strengths that were complementary, you know, mm -hmm. to it. Um, and I really think, I mean, this, this is the kind of project that I, I mean, I like to think that, that Peter needed me, um, but I, I couldn't yeah, have done it without him. Oh, I can see that given all of Peter's experience. I was gonna ask the question about permissions because that's usually a very fraught topic for, for biographers and editors of papers because often there's someone who doesn't want to release material or they wanna charge you a fortune for it. And evidently, Peter, you didn't have any of those problems? No, we had none. We had uh, the full support of everyone that we approached, um, which was unusual. Um, but also very welcome because, you know, the, the, the fees can add up. Um, but, but in this instance, we were, we were able to do everything and I, that, you know, we, we both came to this project with nothing but passion and a vision for getting, for getting the book out. And LSU did a beautiful book, uh, a beautiful job producing. Yeah, I agree. Yes. And, um, so that only helps, you know, knowing that the publisher was so supportive and so uh, deeply invested in, in in helping us bring out something that that's remarkable. But the um, but getting the support of these people really was was sort of uh, uh, something that I think helped me feel even better about what we were doing because you know all parties had an interest in it that were not necessarily not necessarily financial. You know, they, they wanted this book to come out so that um, for the first time ever, Asia can speak for herself. And I think that that's the most important thing that I take away from um, my involvement with the book and with the book coming out is that we'll, we can all, you know, we can all read her words in an unadulterated fashion um, with with really helpful footnotes Um that will help um, it's like a color analyst in a sporting event that just provides context to her life and her times. And, and that, um, yeah, that's that. I think that's, uh, I think you really nailed it. I think it's a work in a sense, as, as some biographies are too, it's in a way a, a work of redemption. You know, you talk about her being able to speak in her own voice and what, what you're offering to those people who you needed to rely on to get the letters or permission to, to use the letters and so on is essentially, well, here she's, she's presenting herself in a way. Um, and uh, unlike a biographical narrative where no matter what the biographer does in a sense, obviously it's an interpretation. It's mm -hmm. somebody's Asia Webel. Uh, and I think that's what makes your book different and perhaps very appealing uh, to the to the people you approached about reproducing all of this material. Um, maybe you could say a little bit too about, was it an easy choice the way you divided up the book between letters, journals, uh, translations, and miscellaneous texts? Um, was that a, did that just come naturally or, or did you have other ideas in mind? Julie? So, 
I, I think, so we, we had the most letters, I mean, as compared to the journals. And so initially, it, it, the journals were the ones that I, I was most excited about, um, you know, because it's, it's very personal um, in, in terms of, of the writing. And we were able to collect as many extant journal entries um, as, as we could. So all of the ones that we know exist have, have been published in, in the book. And, you know, it, it really is quite miraculous that we have this writing at all, you know? So, um, I mean, the, I, Ted Hughes himself in a letter had directed Asia to keep a journal because he wanted to read it. But then after a period of time, he asked her to destroy, you know, that, mm -hmm. that journal writing yes. because he didn't want a record of their relationship. And of course she didn't do that. Um, but, you know, there, there's also the letter in which, um, Asia uh, writes to um, Janice Porter and she asks her to destroy that letter too. And that letter wasn't destroyed as well. And so the fact that we have this writing and then too, that when Asia died, you know, Hughes um, crated up the belongings and shipped them to Canada and the, the ship sank. And then the crates emerged months later and Asia's sister then ended up receiving the, the materials. So the fact that that material was even sent to her and the fact that it, it you know, came out of the, the water almost miraculously and that it, it was undamaged. I mean, yeah. that- That's that story, a rebirth story too. It, yeah, it, it truly is. And and so so the fact that we have this writing at all, um, I, I feel really um, in, in awe that, that we have this and that we were able to, um, to work with it. So, um, so the journals were an exciting find. The letters, um, you know, we have so many more of them to, to different recipients. And um, those, those are first, and it was clear to us, you know, that we were going to arrange the book chronologically. So rather than, you know, slot, so for instance, some of the journal entries are loose, um, but we go ahead and, and, and place them um, chronologically for the ease of the reader and, and the researcher. So you're not having to flip back and forth between the body of the text and, and the appendix, for instance. Um, and so because the letters come first, that's where Asia's story starts in, in our book. And so we um, worked hard on, on the letters and arranging them chronologically and dating them on transcribing them, curating them, researching them. And then the journals are next. And um, then we decided to include um, the handful of po original poems um, that she authored. And, you know, I, I, there's, there's some debate about the literary merit of, of those poems. I just think they're, they're interesting, you know, in and of themselves. I think some of them are, are actually really good poems, um, you know, but, but I'm not trying to argue that, that, you know, she's writing in the level of Plather Hughes. They're, they're interesting, you know, poems. Um, the translations, however, of Yehuda Amakai's work, I think that's where her literary contributions outside of life writing, so outside of letters and um, and journal writing, um, it's it's the translate the translations are the ones that um, are the the significant contribution in, in terms of um, uh, well, I, I don't know if you want to call um, translations original work, but um, but they're necessary and important, and they were the first English translations of, of Amakai's work, and so um, the the poems now um, are. Uh, are all together. They're in print, um, you know, for the first time in, in decades. Um, and those are, are 
um, really quite lovely to read. And Asia chose the ones that spoke to her, you know, that that seemed to resonate um, with, with her own um, life. And so they're, uh, they're quite fascinating in, in that regard too. So the, it, it really to us made uh, good sense to start with the letters and then include the journals and then the original poems and then the translations. And then we, de I, we decided that, um, you know, in, in, the, um, in the aim of being able to um, publish everything that we could um, that she had authored, we decided to include all texts. So instead of a selected writings, which initially we thought it might be, we decided to produce a collected writings. And so the miscellaneous texts include things like her BBC transcript in which she introduced Amakai's poems over, um, you know, BBC airwaves with Ted Hughes reading the, the translations. Um, it includes a draft of an unfinished will. Um, it includes various notes. And um, I, I'm excited to see what might come about in, in the future, you know, as, as a result of having all of this writing in print, because it's hard to say, you know, what's, um, what it might spark in terms of future projects. Yes, oh yes. I think one of the things that uh, anyone who reads uh, your book, uh, The Collected Writings of Asia Lovell, will realize is if you read Plath biographies, any Plath biography, um, Asia is a character who comes in very near the end of Plath's life. But when you read Asia's, this, this book of yours, uh, it is at the end, it's true, but she's, I don't, know, I don't know how to put this exactly, but she's there during class life. In other words, there's a fairly significant amount of material uh, in the book that is occurring um, in that, you know, last year or so of class life that I think, and this is sort of gets to a question I want you and uh, Peter to address as well. Maybe Peter can start. And that is for someone who has studied Plath and knows Plath fairly well, what does this book do for them in a sense? If they're very much focused on Plath and they're thinking, well, does it really matter whether I read about Asia Webel since she only comes in at the very end? I think, and, and I'll be writing about this in Plath Profiles, I think she makes an enormous contribution to our understanding of Plath. Uh, how do you see it, Peter? Yeah, I the I think parts of the book that I found really interesting, um, in particular, are the the periods where where Plath and Wevel nearly intersect. Yeah. Um, for example, in October of 55, Plath is a, a new student in Cambridge. She had just spent a week or so in in London, sort of getting her bearings down. And Asia Wevel, who was Asia Lipsy at the time, um, is there too. And they they you know they're so they're it's a, it's a near miss. And then um, they. I'm sorry. Again, when was this? In October of 55. Okay, go ahead. So a little bit before they actually met. And then, you know, in Cambridge, um, Plath and David Level are publishing in the same uh, journals. And and then, you know, they go their separate ways, go to Burma, go to America, whatever. And then sort of they reconvene at this, um, at this perfectly awful time, it turned out, in London in 1961. And um, 
you know, if 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 they hadn't decided to leave London to go to the country, they wouldn't put their house up for rent or their their flat up for rent. They never they might have delayed the meeting. Um, but it's interesting to see how they nearly intersected a few times. And and then, you know, for the period where they're both in in England in either, you know, Port Green or London, um, it's, you know, it, it, it's interesting to see how they are each conducting their business. We know very well what Plath was doing for almost the entirety of, of her life because she was so well documented um, by either herself or her mother or by others. Um, and Asiya's life is, is fragmented, which I think is clear in this book. Um, you know, there are years that we don't have anything. And then all of a sudden we get these journals that start just after Plath's death. Um, so it's interesting to see how, you know, just how she was living her life uh, um, in the same way that we, you know, we know a lot about how Plath was hers. Yeah, that's right. Um, in reading the book too, having done my, my research on Plath and interviewing people who knew Plath, I kept thinking about what people like uh, El Alvarez said to me about, you know, how Asia looked and what, what he made of what she said. And then when you read her letters, um, you see it from an entirely different angle. You know, mm -hmm. it could almost be a sort of Rashomon film. Uh, right. If there are any film producers um, listening to this, uh, <laughs> this would be a good book to use to add, adapt uh, and and take note of what Peter said about they're almost intersecting. Boy, could that be part of the drama? Hmm. Um, what do you think, Julie? Since you're you're you know you're versed in Plath, um, what difference does it make knowing about Asia Level? Well, I, I think I think what you've said, Carla, is is really um, beautifully stated, and and certainly what Peter has said too. Um, <clears throat> you know, I I think. What what interests me is that um, the the most recent work on Plath is all acknowledging Asia. So your book in the last days of Sylvia Plath, Heather Clark's book Red Comet. Um, there are two other books coming out um, this year um, that I I recently read. Um, one is Ted Hughes Sylvia Plath and the writing between them turning the table references Asia. Um, as does Breaking Down Plath. I mean, so so recent and forthcoming books are um, considering Asia, that, that, they, that um, Plath scholarship now sees her as a more essential piece, not a kind of like curiosity or a footnote, but something that, um, you know, we need to understand um, the, the impact Asia made in terms of the life that she lived. Um, and then I would argue too, her work is, is what she has to say is, is important as well. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of um, how, what she has to say about Plath, I mean, I, I think what's, um, what's really useful, at least from my perspective, and, and I do work in, in trauma studies and identity politics. And, and I think um, the way that she, um, addresses the traumatic aftermath and legacy of Plath's suicide is critical and really important because that was, that's a traumatic event that, that Hughes and Asia both grappled with. And so you get to see these, these, um, 
large ramifications and, and the, the long repercussions um, that, that come about as a result of that, that sudden and, um, and, and I mean, almost inexplicable death. So you see Asia trying to make sense of it. You see how Plath's death um, haunted her. Um, in, in the, and that's the word that, that Faye Weldon, you know, uses in, in an interview. Um, and then, so Asia recounts um, how much she admires Plath and then gives us details of what life was like after she died. And some of those are, much of that actually, I find to be especially harrowing. And from like a, a feminist trauma studies perspective, you know, it's really important to consider how these are real lives um, that, um, present them, I mean, we have the privilege of studying them, you know, that, that present themselves to us in ways that we can learn real world lessons from them, that we can see what trauma is and what it does. Um, and that avenues for healing, you know, for Asia were rather closed off. And so that that's how I tend to understand her, her death, actually. Um, I, I think, you know, we haven't mentioned Ted Hughes yet, um, because all three of us are, are, are most invested in, in Plath. But um, Platt's death was, was traumatic for Hughes and Asia, and then of course Shura's death. Um, Shura um, uh, was the daughter of, of Hughes and Asia. Um, Shura's death was traumatic for him as well. And so it's interesting to read Hughes's take on it because you see that um, you know he he suffered. I mean, apparently from PTSD symptoms, as he records in his private diary. But you know he has this kind of um, public. Uh, I've called it like a party line, but this kind of public line or public argument, you know, that that he, um, uh, you know, created and circulated, um, in which he's trying to make sense of of um, the traumatic events of, of 1963 and, and 1969. And um, I, you know, I, I think um, it's it's really important to engage with that and to you know, as as hard it is it as it is you know, to um, engage with painful material because it has everything to do, you know, with, with trauma in, in the real world. And so, I mean, I, I sometimes think of Asia's life as a kind of case study, you know, that we can look at it not only in terms of um, feminist possibilities and constraints, which is what I have argued in, in reclaiming Asia level, but I think that the trauma component is really important. And I think for biographers, you know, seeing the, the broken pieces and the aftermath and how, you know, the, um, you know, remarkable achievements of Plath's life um, and the inspiration of it too. I mean, you know, Asia was quite inspired by Plath and admired her, you know, but also, I mean, was really um, oh, uh, influenced negatively, you know, by Plath too. Not only because Plath was, um, you know, such a, a remarkable example of what a person could be, you know, in, in so many instances, but because of, of the traumatic way that she died. And, and I think the, um, the letters and the journals are um, important and significant in that, in that respect, because you get to see um, the real world effects of trauma, unfortunately, and, and, and what that does to people, including Ted Hughes. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. Um... For me, uh, the collected writings at SEO level is, is also important because uh, when you look at, you know, people are still assessing um, Sylvia Plath's last letters and what she was going through, and certainly trauma is a huge part of it. And she's saying things about what Ted Hughes says to her. 
And there are people who wonder, is she exaggerating? Is this the result of a trauma? Is she in some sense making this up or fictionalizing some of this? And then when you read what Asia Wevel went through, uh, Plath's own words, for me anyway, and I'm writing a book about this, The Making of Sylvia Plath, Plath's own words now have a greater resonance and a kind of authenticity when you can see her in the context of this other life, and uh, of Asia Wevel's life. Uh, I think it makes an, an enormous difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Peter. Um, I do want to ask, though, both of you, if there's something I should have asked you that I didn't, that you wanted to say. Um, there, there's nothing that I can think of, but when, when, when Julie was just speaking and, and you know, about the, the trauma aspect and things like that, it got me thinking, I wonder if over the course of her relationship with Ted Hughes, if there were repeated instances of trauma, new trauma, relived trauma, when, for example, Ariel came out or when yeah. the bell jar was published under Plath's name. We don't know um, because there, there are no writings and letters or that we know of that express Asia's opinions on, on these publications. But um, just seeing the fame that Plath got with Ariel, um, I, just, I just wonder if that was in, in any way uh, you know, a negative uh, impact, had a negative impact on Asia Rebel's life um, at the time. Yeah. I, think such a, I think that's such a discerning point. Um, you know, it, because especially when you think about the timeline and Peter's right, the timeline is so difficult to put together when it, when it comes to, to Asia. I mean, she herself, you know, calls herself a displaced person. Um, hmm. You know, I, I think um, it, it's the, the timeline is, uh, is so interesting because, you know, um, Asia gives birth to Shura, and then shortly thereafter, Ariel's published. Oh yeah, it's within days. I mean, and so here is is the birth of this daughter that you know Asia loved immensely. I mean, it's 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 a joy, you know, to get to read um, her her writing, you know, about, mm -hmm. about Shura, um, heartbreaking too. But you know, it's it's beautiful to read, and then Ariel comes out. <laughs> And, um, you know, I, I, I think Peter is, is exactly right. I mean, I, I think um, we, we can imagine um, from what Asia, um, you know, does say from the writing we do have um, and how uh, sort of panic stricken she is in, in so much of it, you know, how um, Plath's legacy was one that was so palpable, you know, that, um, I mean, it really caused a rift um, between Asia and and Hughes, you know that's the reason Asia gives that that Hughes, um, you know, says ultimately that uh, as we're given to understand that they could never be together, that he could perhaps never fully commit himself to hers because Plath will always be between them. Mm -hmm. So I, I think yeah, I think what Peter said is is exactly right. Very much so. Well, this is a movie. Make this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I hope the right people are listening. You've got two very good consultants here for the movie. <laughs> well, it's, been, it's really been a delight speaking to both of you. Um, again, we're talking about the collected writings of Asia Wevel, superbly edited, 
by Julie Goodspeak Chadwick and Peter K. Steinberg. And uh, thanks again for talking to me. Thank you so much, Carl. Thank you, Carl. Okay. Bye-bye. I will post this shortly. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.